Alright, so you can turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. The section we're on, as you see at the top of your sheet there, is verse 4 through 17 today. So we're at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through 17, and we're going to read that in just a moment. Let me pray for us before we, before we read this passage, okay? So pray with me. God, thank you so much for your word. God, as was prayed earlier, I just say, amen, Lord, your word is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray that you would speak to us today with your word. God, we want to know you. We want to draw near to you. And we want to be directed and commanded by you, God. So I just pray that through your word today that you would do that, that you would cause our hearts to worship you as a glorious God as you truly are. And I pray, God, that you would command us and move us, God, move our hearts to to obey you. Lord, Paul said that you stood with him and you strengthened him so that the message might be preached fully through him. And God, I come to you weaker than Paul. In need of help, God, that you would come and stand and you would speak through me so that the message might be proclaimed fully. And God, every person here under the hearing of your word needs your help, God. God, unless you give us ears to hear, we can't hear. Unless you give us eyes to see, we can't see. So God, would you please come and speak through me, God, and through your word. And open the ears and eyes of your people, God, to be impacted by your word. Please help us today, Lord. God, we don't want to just go through the motions of another teaching. We want to meet with you in your word. So please come, Lord. Please come. Please help us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, Genesis chapter 2. Let's read verse 4. Through 17. Everybody ready? This is the history of the heavens and the earth. When they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth. And before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on earth. And there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It, It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hadakal. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, You shall surely die. If I had to explain what this section is all about, main point, you know, what is this section all about? And I had to give it to you in a phrase. I got it there at the top of your sheet. That's my phrase. God's incredible grace on the man who would rebel against him. Okay, so I want to explain that for a minute. Because I think this section is all about God's incredible grace poured out. On this man who's going to actually rebel against him. Okay, there's a lot of little details in here. A lot of questions that people ask. That really when it's all said and done, it doesn't matter. 
I heard a guy say, you know, they was teaching on this little part right here. He said he could care less whether or not Adam had a navel. <laughs> I said, yeah, me neither. I don't care about that. But there's a main point here, okay? And I want you to see as we enter into this time of looking at this section, I want you to see what the main point is before we even go verse by verse. This is the grace of God. What you're seeing in this section is the grace of God. The grace of God poured out on a man. The goodness of God poured out on a man who would rebel against him, okay? So this section, starting in chapter 2, verse 4, is a new section in the book of Genesis, Okay, we've gone through chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. And there we see the seven days of creation. We see the glory of God, the Creator God, Elohim. We've seen that in these first, this first section, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. And when you get into to verse 4, we're going to begin a new section of the book of Genesis. And here we're entering into a time of seeing the fall of man, the rebellion of man, and the redemption of God. Where God comes to redeem man. And that's going to carry out through the rest of this Bible. So start in chapter 2 verse 4. New section. The fall of man. And we're going to see the redemption that God begins to work out for this man. Now, when most people think about the fall of man, what do you think about? Where do you go in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3, right? Most of you, when you think about the fall of man, the, rebe the rebellion of man, you immediately think about Genesis chapter 3. And what I hope to do is I want to suggest to you that when you think about the fall of man, I want you to think about Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. We're starting today all the way to the end of chapter 4. So when you think about the fall of man, this section of chapters 2 through 4 of Genesis, that's what I want to kind of, I want to put before you. I think what's going on here is chapter 2 of Genesis is like a setup. It's like a setup. It's like it's setting the scene for the fall of man that we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3. Okay? And then in chapter 4, we're going to see the, the next generation results of the fall of man. As you see murder happen in the family of Adam and Eve. Okay? So what I want you to see in this whole section, chapters 2 through, th two, two through 4, actually beginning in 2 verse 4, I want you to see the fall of man. Okay? Now let me give you, let me give you three reasons. Three reasons did I think that our section today is like a setup? It's like a, uh, it's setting the scene for the fall of man. Let me give you three reasons why I think that way. Reason number one is this. It starts off in verse four. If you look at it, this is the history of. This is the history of. Some of your verses say this is the generations of, or this is the account of. This is the history of. This is a phrase that gets repeated over and over and over again. About ten times in the book of Genesis. And when it appears over and over again. People, many people call this a, the toledot. It's just the Hebrew word for history or generations there. And when this phrase appears. This is the history of. Or this is the generations of. This is the beginning of a new section in Genesis. And so you can literally map out the book of Genesis at this phrase. This is the history of. And this is the first time that we see that phrase. Okay, the next time we see that phrase is in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1. This is the generations of in Genesis 5 verse 1. So what that means is from chapter 2 verse 4 to the last verse in chapter 4. This is the section and then we begin a new one in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1. So that's reason number 1. Well, I want you to think that way. I want you to think of this as a section, okay? About the fall of man and the redemption that God brings to man. Number two is this. It says in chapter 2, verse 4, what does it call God? The Lord God. And we tend to pass over that. We just say the Lord God and we pass over it. But what I want you to see is He's called the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters in most of your Bibles, God, okay? The, for, from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, where we've already been, 35 times it's packed in there. God is called Elohim, 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 Elohim. It's just packed in there because that section is all about our Creator, majestic God, Elohim. And then what happens, you get into chapter 2, verse 4, and it begins to turn this corner. And you've got that, that toledote there. This is the history of, and then God is not called just Elohim. He is called Yahweh Elohim. He is called the Lord God. Now, in case you say, well, it's just a name, that doesn't really, that might not mean a whole lot. Let me read this to you. Exodus chapter 3, excuse me, Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. Verse 2, actually. 
And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. See, that's in the book of Genesis where we're at. As God Almighty. That's who I appear to them as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, Yahweh, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them. So here's the idea. This is a big deal. So you get into chapter 2, verse 4 of Genesis, and now He is Yahweh Elohim. He is the Lord God. And so what's getting presented to you is He's already been proclaimed to you as the majestic Creator God. And now He's being proclaimed to you as the covenant God. The God who makes promises. The covenant Redeemer. The one that's going to redeem His people. And so this whole section, this is what He's called in chapters 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 of Genesis. This is about the fall of man and God's promise to redeem that man. Okay? Reason number three is this. If you read in the section that we're in, so why, why do I think this is a setup for the fall of man? If you read this section we're in, the details that are, that are specific, specific details throughout this section that we're in, they point forward to let us know they're setting us up for the, for the fall of man in chapter 3. For example, two trees are specifically mentioned to you in this section. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's going to come to play in chapter 3 in the fall of man. Also, a command is given. The command to don't eat of the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's given, and that's going to come to play in the fall of man in chapter 3. And then also the warning, the consequence is given. If you eat of this tree, you will die, and that's going to come to play in the fall of man. So all these specific details are leading up. This section that I'm that we're going to read through together and talk through together right now is a setup. It's a it's setting the scene for the fall of man. That is to come. Now here's, here's why I tell you that. Once you understand that reading Genesis 2 is setting the scene for this catastrophic event in chapter 3, once you see that, you can begin to see the main point of this section of Scripture. And I want you to see it. Okay? When you know this is set up for the fall of man, you can see the main point. Because what happens is we've already been given the seven days of creation. In day six, God created man. And what happens in chapter two, verse four, is God's going to zoom in on that day six. And he's going to give you the how did he create man? How did he create woman? And where did he put these people? You get more intricate details about what went down on that day six, okay? And so here's, here's what you see. When you begin to dive into chapter 2 of Genesis, this is the main thing, the main point that you see in this chapter. That God has poured out unthinkable blessing, unthinkable favor and love and grace and goodness on these men, this man and this woman that He has created. He has poured out His goodness. And that's the main thing you walk away with. You think about it. What we see in this section is He breathed on them. And He gave them life. He breathed into his nostrils a breath of life and he became a living being. He places them in this amazing garden paradise that God himself planted. He gives them a vast array of, a vast array of beautiful things to look at and enjoy. He says some of those trees were pleasant to the sight. He gives them a vast array of, of sustenance and satisfaction of things to eat. He says some of those trees or all those trees were good for food. He gives them access to the tree of life, which would give them this pleasure and this joy and this blessing for, forever and ever and ever. Give them immortality. He made them captains over His creation, saying, have dominion over these things. He makes them captains. You think of the goodness being poured out in this section of Scripture. He gives this man and woman each other. He gives Adam an, an amazing wife to enjoy and Eve an amazing husband to enjoy. And most of all, in this section, we see that God is in the Garden of Eden and He is with them. He's speaking with them, walking with them in the cool of the day. They get the presence of Almighty God here in the Garden of Eden. So what you see in this section of Scripture is God's goodness, God's grace is being poured out. Now, now think, okay? I need you to think. Because we need to ask the question, why? Why would God give us insight into the goodness of God poured out on Adam prior to telling us about his rebellious fall? Why? Why would God do that? 
Why does He want us to see His goodness poured out first before we see man rebel against God? Why? Why does He want to do that? Why not just go straight to Genesis chapter 3? Let us see the disobedience of man. Why not just go straight there? But instead, in this section, this this literally geared towards showing us the fall of man. Genesis chapter 2. First, He wants to show you His goodness and His grace poured out. Why? Does he want to do this? I'm going to give you two major reasons. And if you've got a pen you like to write, you can write it down right here. Two major reasons. Reason number one is this. So that we might understand the horrific nature of man's rebellion against God. So that we might see the horrific nature of man's rebellion against God. If all we had was Genesis chapter 3, we would see man's rebellion against God. What I'm telling you is Genesis chapter 2 and seeing God's love and, and goodness poured out helps us to see not only their rebellion, but the horrific nature of this sin that man has walked in. I want you to think about it like this. If I spit in the face of somebody that I do not know, I spit in the face of a stranger, that's wrong, Right? But listen, if I spit in the face of my mama who changed my diapers and loved me and cared for me and fed me and did all kind of good things for me and raised me up and provided, she did so much good for me and I spit in her face, that is wrong to the core. You get what I'm saying? So Genesis chapter 2 is setting it up so that you can see the horrific nature of man's sin against God. Major reason number two is this. So that we might see, we might understand the incredible mercy, goodness, love of God poured out on this rebellious man that he has created. I want you to think about it. What we're going to see is that, is that God's not just offering up a way of redemption to somebody who just messed up a little bit. What we're seeing is God setting a path for redemption for one who has trampled his grace under his feet. You see the difference? And so this is what chapter 2 of Genesis is setting up. Okay, so let's, we'll come back to some of that in a moment. But let's go straight into the beginnings of man. Chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. So if we read chapter 2, verse 4 through 7, we're going to see the beginnings of man. Verse 4 is just like, it's like an introductory place here. Listen to verse 4 again. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It's introductory here. You're saying there it is, okay? This is the generations. This is the history. Verse 5 through 6 is going to set up. This is, the, this is the scene into which man was created. Verse 5 and 6. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So, so what you have here, okay, what you have here, and I, w- I want you to see this. If you're, if you're watching, you know, you're looking tightly, you're really uh, looking at the details of the creation account, chapter 1 and chapter 2, you could almost seem like there's some sort of contradiction here. And I just want to tell you very quickly, without digging into a ton of details, that there's not a contradiction here, okay? Listen to me. What Adam is, is formed into right here is from Genesis chapter 1. We see the third day of creation. Vegetation, plants, trees. All these things are created. It's beautiful. And he's, and he's created into this. Well, why does verse 5 say, Before any plant of the field was in the earth. And it's very, very simple. If you could just look up the Hebrew word that's mentioned over there. And this is why some of your versions, like the ESV, it says bushes. It says these, these bushes of the field. It's a different Hebrew word over in chapter 1 of what God created on day 3. And it's a different word mentioned right here in verse 5 of what God has created also. uh, After man has already been formed. Okay? So so don't let that throw you off. You know, uh, silly contradictions. I I was debating when I was going to go into this. Um, Silly contradictions. If, If somebody comes to you, okay, if anybody ever comes to you and they say, uh, there's this contradiction in the Bible. Okay, here's something I want you to learn about that. Here's something I want you to learn about that. Number one, there's a principle you need to learn. If you see something that seems like some sort of contradiction in the Bible, especially one this obvious, this you know, it's, they, it's like the second chapter of Genesis. Okay? 
Your first thought should not be, oh man, it was a contradiction. Your first thought should probably be, probably be something like this. Maybe I'm not seeing something right because surely Moses was not that stupid. Okay? Do you get what I'm saying? Okay, so, so it, you know, it can be frustrating when you get somebody, you know, somebody comes and says, oh man, look, some atheist, you know, showing his lack of intellect over the Bible says, says oh, look at that uh, contradiction right there in Genesis chapter 2. And it makes you want to look at him real surprised. Go, whoa, hot dog, nobody ever seen that before. That's awesome, man. Moses was an idiot. You know, it makes you want to say, no, don't do that. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, instead of doing that, you should, with gentleness, respond and correct with patience, okay? But it makes you want to do this, frustrated. But, there, but there's, no, there's no contradiction here as you're looking at it. It's a different Hebrew word when it says in verse 5, before any plant of the field. This is a word for what God was doing, because God is about to do what? He's going to form Adam and then do what? Do what? He's going to plant a garden. A God-planted garden is about to happen. So he gets formed into this creation that's already there. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And then he's about to put Adam right in the midst of this garden where he's going to put these other small plants and these bushes and these trees that we read about as we continue on in Genesis chapter 2. Okay? So, so kind of back up with me, okay? So what you have here is when man comes on the scene... Genesis 2, verse 5 through 6 is already in place, okay? So what does it say in Genesis 2, 5 through 6? You have a world full of vegetation, grass, herbs. It's already there, okay? But there's no small bushes, no small plants yet. That must be cultivated by the man. There's no rain on the earth just yet, according to those two verses. But instead, the, the earth's surface is watered by what it calls a mist. Uh, some people say some sort of subterranean streams and the surface of the earth is being watered through that. And then all of a sudden, Adam gets formed into that environment and now what's it, what is he about to get to see? He's going to see his Creator who loves him form this garden, this garden paradise for him. He's about to get to see it go down according to verse 8. Okay. Now, but what I want to do is I want to I zoom in on chapter 2, verse 7. This is the creation of man. This is the more detailed account of the creation of man. It says right there in verse 7. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. So what we see here is the dignity of man and the humility of man. Okay, We see the dignity in that God formed this man. He did that. And we see humility in that he was formed from what? The dust of the ground. Okay, so let's start with the dignity of man. It says God formed this man. That's the word form. Now this, we've seen in Genesis 1 the word created. We've seen the word made. But this is a different Hebrew word. He formed this man. He's giving you some detail here. This is the first time this word is used. God formed this man. This word indicates careful, the, the careful design of God as He creates this man. This word many times, in fact, I believe it's about 17 times in the Bible is translated the potter. The potter. So this is like the picture here. It's like a potter, which is God. And He's forming His clay called man. And He's forming it together. Now, this is what's going on. Isaiah 64 verse 8 says, says, We are the clay and you are potter. We are all the work of your hand. Psalm 139 shows us that this continues on. That God just keeps forming people even today in a similar way except now it's in the womb. Listen to Psalm 139 and see the careful, intricate forming of God. Listen. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Love that. So here you've got what you have in this section is God's forming Adam, just like he forms all of Adam's offspring. And this brings limitless glory to our Creator God when you think about what God is forming as He forms man. I want you to think about it. He's forming hearts that beat over 100,000 times a day. Lungs that breathe for us 24,000 times a day. Eyes that are composed of over 2 million working parts. 206 bones in the human body. 640 muscles, 
60,000 miles of blood vessels. I believe that will wrap around the earth a few times. The human body has 30 trillion cells in it and produces 25 million new cells every second. And God's forming it. He's forming it. And this brings Him limitless glory. This is who our God is, is forming this man. Now, seeing God's careful design, His intricate work in forming man, should cause us to look on all mankind with dignity, respect, honor, and worth. Let me put some Bible on that, okay? One of the reasons that we should not murder and that murder is sinful is because the one that you murder is made, formed by God in His image. Listen to Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made him. See, this thought that he's made and formed in the image of God should cause us to have dignity toward all mankind. One of the reasons why you don't, you don't curse a person made, formed in the image of God is just because of that. He's formed in the image of God. You don't curse that person with your mouth. Listen to James chapter, two, chapter 3, verse 9. With it, he's talking about our tongue. With it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. These things ought not to be so. It's not okay to kill a child in the womb. Why? One of the reasons because that child is formed in the image of God. It's what it said in Psalm 139. He formed my inward parts and knitted me together in my mother's womb. Dignity should be given to all those who are formed by God in His image. This is what we see in Adam here in chapter 2. Also the humility. So you see the dignity of man and that God formed him. And God gets glory for that. And we also see the humility of man and that God formed him from dust. From the dirt, it says. From dust. Now, this ought to humble us for two reasons. Let me give you two reasons that this ought to humble us. One is this. Think of the intricacies of man. Two million parts working in the eyeball. Okay? And God makes this from what? Dust. What can you make from dust? <laughs> Nothing. Pour some water on it, do a little mud thing, but you can't make anything from dust. But God makes intricate man from dust. And so this causes us, it's humble. So it says, humble, your sight and humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself before this God that creates the most intricate things from dust. That's reason number one. Reason number two is this. Just the simple fact that we are from dust. Abraham got this. Listen to Abraham, Genesis 18, 27. Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I who am dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. So he caught it, that this produces humility. David got this. Listen to Psalm 103.14. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. We're just dust from the dust of the ground. God formed us. So the next time you feel tempted to, to rise up in pride and in arrogance against God and against your fellow man, it would do you well to remember you are from dust and to dust you shall return. Listen to what John Calvin said about it. About this passage. John Calvin, he was talking about this passage. It says, he, we are formed from dust. And he said this. He must be excessively stupid who does not hear learn humility. Not one of his most elegant passages. Or quotes, I mean. But we must learn humility that we are formed from the dust. Okay? Also in Genesis 2.7 it says this. That God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. I want you to see the intimate picture of God here breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. This takes out all the idea that you would look at this passage or verse 7 with some kind of mechanical mindset. This is not just mechanical. You know from other places in God's word that God loved Adam before time began. And now he leans down like a father to his son and gets into his face and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. This is an intimacy that you see here. Derek Kidner said it like this. He said, breathed, breathed is, a, is warmly personal. 
with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that as God gives His life. Gives life. This is a reminder that God has life within Himself. He is dependent on no one else. He has life all by Himself. But we are dependent upon God for life. Adam was and every one of us are right now. Listen to Job 34 verse 14. If He, God, should gather to Himself His Spirit and His breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. Everybody in here, dust on the floor. If God returns His breath. Alright, let's talk about the Garden of Eden. Okay? Verse 8 through 14 is going to show us the place where God put this man. The place that He made for this man. We're going to see the Garden of Eden. Okay? So here's what we got. We've got Adam formed by God. Fearfully and wonderfully made. God has expressed ridiculous love for His creation by getting down like a father with his son and breathing life into him, right? This has already happened. And where does God want Adam to dwell? And, and Adam, Adam gets the privilege of seeing God form a garden paradise for him. He gets the privilege of seeing that, okay? Let's read verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. So he says it right there that God created this garden in Eden, in this place called Eden, and he put the man there. And the next few verses, all the way to verse 14, are going to give you some explanation about more details about what that looked like, okay? Looked like. And so what we see in this section of scripture, let me go ahead and read the rest of it, verse 9 through let me read verse 9 through 10, 9 and 10. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You see the description of this place? Verse 10. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it parted and became four river heads. So you see the description of this place. Of the trees and the rivers. And this is what you're seeing God put before you. Okay? And I'm not going to read the rest at the moment of the details of the rivers. But here's what you know about the Garden of Eden. It was a perfect paradise Planted there by God Himself. You see that in verse 8. It says, God planted a garden. God planted a garden. The Garden of Eden is called this in other places of Scripture. Ezekiel 28.13 calls it the Garden of God. Genesis 13.10 calls it the Garden of Yahweh. Because this garden is His. And it's marked by His presence. The presence of God is here. We see in the first three chapters of Genesis of God walking with them in the cool of the day. We see of, of God speaking with them. Okay, We see the presence of God is here. This is a place where God communes with man and man gets the, the fullness of joy of communing with God in the Garden of Eden. This is what God has formed for him. The Garden of Eden was a place of ultimate pleasure and delight. The word Eden, it means, the word Eden, it means pleasure. It means delight. This place could have been described like Psalm 16, 11. In His presence, fullness of joy. At His right hand, pleasures forevermore. Okay, and this is the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a place of visual pleasure. It says, those trees out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight, verse 9. Pleasant to the sight. A place of visual pleasure. People go sightseeing many times and they, and they find enjoyment from what they see. Can you imagine a garden created by God and you see it and you find joy in what you see that God's hand is made. The Garden of Eden is a place of sustenance and satisfaction. It says that those trees also are what? Good for food in verse 9. Good for food. So we see here physical satisfaction found in the Garden of Eden. And this is a picture of it's emotional satisfaction, spiritual satisfaction. Satisfaction to, to the ultimate satisfaction is to be found in this place, the Garden of Eden. The ultimate joy. The Garden of Eden was a place where Adam could have existed in this state of ultimate joy and pleasure forever. Because he offers up this provision of the tree of life. The tree of life. We know from Genesis 3.22 that had they that this was that it was created so that they could partake of that tree of life had they done it and continue on forever in this state of fullness of joy. The Garden of Eden was a beautiful, 
a well-watered place out of which and through which flowed rivers, major rivers that we see here. It says in, in verse 10, Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. Now the point of this is not to get to the specifics. You, you have some direction there. The point of mentioning that is not to get to, to the specifics of uh, where the Garden of Eden was located. Okay, surely, surely when the flood came, many things on the surface of the earth were destroyed in this time. In fact, listen to 2 Peter 3.6. The world that then existed perished. The world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So that's not the point. The point is that this is a well-watered place of life. This is the reason when it's referred to in Genesis 13.10 that he actually says it was well-watered everywhere. He's talking about another piece of land. It was well-watered everywhere like the garden of God. This is place. This place of God's goodness poured out. The Garden of Eden is a place that God intended Adam and Eve to enter into His rest, which He entered into on day 7 of creation. It says, I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. It's Genesis 2.15. Now the word translated, put him right there, you put him there, it's not the same as the one in chapter 2 verse 8 where it says He put him there. This word literally is the word for rest. God rested him there. God, God put him into the rest of this place. The rest where he's supposed to enter into the rest of God and his presence. He's entered into the rest, as we know from what Dustin taught, the rest of the completed work of God. And he was to enter into it in this place, in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, Adam was in paradise. A perfect paradise. He walked with God. He was allowed to... Experienced the unparalleled presence of the Almighty God. He got to experience that in this place. And He's made the human sovereign over all of God's creation. The Garden of Eden. This was a place of God's goodness poured out. Okay? Alright. Man's responsibility. Chapter 2, verse 15 and 17 through 17. We're going to see man's responsibility. Listen to verse 15 again. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So man's responsibility is laid out here. Man's responsibility to serve God and to obey God. Okay, we see serve God in verse 15. And we see obey God in verse 16. And 17. So let's start with the, to serve God, okay? To serve God. God put him in this garden to tend and to keep it. Some of your versions say to work it and to keep it. To work the garden and to keep it. According to this verse, work is not a product of the fall. But this is something that God assigned. It's an assignment of God. It's not a product of the fall. This is a gift from God for His glory and for our enjoyment. This is not work as some people know work. This is work for the glory of God and for our enjoyment. The ideal world, this is something we can learn from this, the ideal world is not a place of idleness and frolic, but rather it's a place of serious activity and service. I would say at the root of many people's pursuit of, of uh, idleness or of, or of uh, never-ending vacation, so the heart of that is missing, is sin and missing the heart of God and His plans as He lays it out here for service and for work. God put Adam in the Garden of Eden. He rested him there. He put him to rest there to work it and to keep it. Don't you love that picture? That God put him there to work it and to rest in his finished work. Don't you love that? Adam, I want you to work this land. Yet I'm, put, I'm resting you here because I want you to rest in my finished work. I've entered into a rest and I want you to enter into a rest of my completed work and yet work it. Work that land. Love this picture. In chapter 1, we see the bigger picture of God's charge to Adam and Eve when He says, in chapter 1, He says, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Uh, fill the earth with the image and glory of God. Have dominion. We see this bigger picture. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with the glory of God. It's the big picture in Genesis chapter 1. But before that charge was actually given, Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 gives us the day in and day out responsibility for this man to work and serve in that garden. The bigger picture, think about it, is God's glory and image spread all over the earth. 
But the day in and day out labor of Adam was to be working and keeping the Garden of Eden. Now, this is a good picture for all of us, right? Because all of us have this, this big picture. We're supposed to be a part of this big picture. Well, we are all about the image and the glory of Jesus being spread all over this earth through making disciples. That's on every one of us. And yet each of us also have this day in and day out. It looks different for us. But this day in and day out of labor and service to God and whatever He's put our hands to do. And I pray that we'd be faithful in both. We'd be faithful in this big picture. Make disciples of all the nations. We'd be faithful in the day in and day out. Like serve God and to obey God. They obey God. Verse 16 and 17. He commanded them not to eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so it says right there in verse 16 that God commanded. This was God's first command to Adam. He commands him something right here. God's command is a demonstration of God's supreme authority. He can command His creation. This is the supreme authority of God. Adam was created by God to be under His authority. And Adam will be most, he will be the happiest and most satisfied when he, he walks right into what he was created to be, to come under the authority of God. And yet he will have great sorrow when he tries to bring himself out from under the authority of God. But this is what he's created. He's commanded, it says right here. I want you to see the grace of God behind this command or the, the, the permissiveness behind this command. Look, at it says, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. It's not like a whole section of trees are off limits for him. It's just, you can have all, you can freely eat of all these trees. And there's just one little exception that's mentioned here. This one little restriction, this one little uh, restriction that's on Adam is sitting right in the middle of the overflowing provision of God. Of all these trees you can freely eat. You see that? Grace of God and one little restriction. The actual command is right here. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So what is, so think with me. What is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We know some details. Verse 9 said it's that tree that's in the midst of the garden. Right up next to the tree of life, right? That God commanded him not to eat of. We know it's that tree from verse 9. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the reason for this tree, of God creating this tree, is not the stinginess of God to want to withhold something from man that would actually be good for Adam. That's what Satan wants him to believe, right? And that what Satan wants him to believe? And when we get into chapter 3, he says, oh, you know, the real thing is God knows that when you eat that tree, you'll be like him. So he wants him to think he's, God's trying to withhold. But that's not what this tree is created for. This tree is created by God. And therefore, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was created for His glory. It was created for the glory of God. And it glorifies God, or it has the potential to glorify God in a unique way. In a unique way. And here's what I mean. All the other trees and all the other blessings and the herbs and all this creation that we read about that God formed and God created for man to dwell there, all of it shows, as, as Adam partakes, the blessing of God, the goodness of God, the love of God poured out. It just exalts and glorifies Him by showing His goodness. Okay? But this tree has the unique ability to glorify God for His authority and His supremacy over all His creation. Okay? Now let me explain that. So how does that work? You think about it. This is put there. So by obeying this command, by Adam obeying this command, don't partake of that, that tree, with his heart, he would be screaming, You, Lord, are supreme. You, Lord, have all authority over all your creation. You, God, are worthy to be trusted. You're worthy to be obeyed. And this tree gives him the opportunity to, to glorify God in that unique way. Now, I think, in, I think in times past, I used to think of uh, or viewed the Garden of Eden and this tree is kind of like the bad part. This is like the bad part of the Garden of Eden. Almost like you had all this creation and it was all good, but you got that one little naughty tree, you know. And I feel like maybe I thought about it, something like that. But this tree was created, think with me. As a creation of God, as a good part of the Garden of Eden, a tree with the potential to magnify the glory of God. Okay, think, think with me. 
the prohibition against eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, saying don't eat of that tree, provided Adam with something glorious. The, the, pro, the prohibition, don't eat of that tree, it provided Adam with something amazing. An opportunity to worship God through loyal devotion and obedience with streams. My God can be trusted. Martin Luther said it like this. He called, Martin Luther, he's talking about the tree and the knowledge of good and evil. Listen to what Martin Luther said about that tree. He said, that's, that's Adam's church, altar, and pulpit. Here he was to yield to God the obedience he owed. Give recognition to the word and will of God. Give thanks to God and call upon God for aid against temptation. You see his view of that? He said this was his, his altar and his pulpit. A place where he could exalt God when God gave the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So I want you to think about it. Without the restriction, without the restriction of God, that small little restriction, you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Without that restriction in this garden paradise scenario... There would be no outlet for constant obedience to God that says you are supremely wise above all your creation and you have supreme authority. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is actually a gracious, it's another gracious gift given to Adam by God to express his love, to give Adam to do, to give Adam an opportunity to glorify him, which is going to bring him more and more joy as he glorifies his God. This tree is actually a gift for Adam's highest joy. Now, the consequence of disobeying his command is what? In the day, verse 17, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, why is it such a serious offense? Why is such a serious offense for Adam to eat of this particular tree? And I'll tell you this. It's, it's not that the that knowledge of good and evil is necessarily bad in and of itself. Knowledge of good and evil is not bad in and of itself. You say, how do you know that? Well, Genesis 3.22, it says... God says, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. So this is a characteristic of God, the knowledge of good and evil. It's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. Not to mention, Adam and Eve, they already knew good, good to some degree, right? And they're not ignorant of evil that they shouldn't disobey God. Okay, so the, the, the point here is it's not that the sin of this, the, the, the seriousness of this sin is not just the knowledge of good and evil in and of itself. In fact, notice that God did not say, don't get the knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good, of good and evil. Okay? So think about it. The offense of eating of that tree, the offense of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is that God had given Adam an opportunity to glorify God, right? He gave, he gave through the tree of good and evil. He gave him an opportunity to glorify God as the supreme authority. And yet when he disobeys, what does he say? I'm the supreme authority. I'm living as a supreme authority. This is the reason this is so serious. He's seeking autonomy from God. He's seeking to be his own God when he disobeys God in this matter, okay? Think with me. The sin is not gaining knowledge of good and evil. The sin is trying to gain that knowledge of good and evil through a means that God said no. He's trying to gain it in an autonomous way, away from God. Independence from God. I'm going to get it on my own. I'm my own God. This is the sin that's so serious here. Wisdom and knowledge is only properly attained through God. Wisdom and knowledge is only properly attained through God. And for Adam to eat of that tree, the tree of knowledge, when God told him not to, is to pursue wisdom and knowledge apart from Him, to be independent of God. I'm my own God. It's an act of rebellion. One more way to say it here. By eating of this tree, Adam will be expressing his desire for autonomy from God, for independence from God. That's what he's expressing in eating of this tree. And this sin would lead to death. And if you think about it, this is at the very heart of all sin, right? 
At the very heart of all sin, independence from God, autonomy from God. I'm my own God. This is at the heart of all sin. Psalm 2, when it mentions 2 verse 1 through 3, and it mentions those people, those, those, the nations and the kings and the rulers. It says they say about God and they say to God, let us cast off his bonds from us. Let us take his shackles off of us. And this is at the very, very heart of sin. So this is where our passage ends in verse 17. Okay, so think with me. Here's where it ends. On top of all the other blessings that God has poured out in the Garden of Eden, on top of all the the, the grace, all the love, all the goodness that God has poured out, now God blesses Adam with a gracious prohibition of that tree, the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat. And why, again, is it a gracious prohibition? Because this gives Adam opportunity to glorify God in which he will peek out his joy by showing him as the supreme authority of all. But if Adam disobeys God, it's sure death. It's death. So I wonder what he's going to do. What's his choice going to be? Let me get a couple of takeaways, Okay. Here's a takeaway. I want you to remember that I said earlier at the very beginning of this, that this section of scripture sets the scene for the fall of man. It sets the scene for rebellion. Okay, and the main thing is it's setting the scene for man's rebellion against God. The main thing that you see in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter two is God's incredible goodness and love being poured out on man. It's the main thing that you see here. Okay. God forms him, breathes on him, gives him life, makes the most incredible garden paradise you have never seen, where he can dwell with God forever. Fullness of joy. Think of the blessings being put. He can dwell with God forever. Fullness of joy. God only puts one tiny little restriction on him, and yet even that restriction is for his good and for God's glory. So why? We asked the question earlier, why? Why does God show His goodness being poured out to set the scene for the fall of man? Why does He do that? And reason number one was, if you remember, to help us understand the horrific nature of our sin. How could you turn away from that God who did that? Number two, to help us see the incredible mercy And grace and love of God that would redeem a people that didn't just mess up, but stomped on His grace and spit in His face. Would He redeem a people like that? So with that in mind, I wonder if you can make some application to yourself. So I wonder if you can make the application personally to yourself. I want you to think for a minute, personally. Think of how good, how incredibly good, just like in the garden even, Garden of Eden. Think of how incredibly good God has been to you. Everybody in here. He formed you in your mother's womb. Intricately woven. He formed you. And He gave you life and breath and all things. He has formed you and given you life. Matthew 5.45 said He makes His Son rise on the good and on the evil. He's made His Son rise on you again and again and again and again. Acts 14 verse 17. It says God didn't leave Himself without witness, but He did good. He gave us rain from heaven. Fruitful seasons. Filling our hearts with food and gladness. You ever been glad? God gave that to you. He's been so good to you. Think of the people He's put around you that you love. God, is, He's been so, so good. He's, he has lavished goodness all over you. Not to mention, He came to rescue. God came in Christ Jesus to rescue sinners like you and sinners like me. The Scripture says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to say, how good has He been towards you? He came into the world to save sinners. And then He made a way that you could be forgiven of your sins as He goes to the cross for you. He came on a rescue mission to save. And then your sin that deserves hell, He drank it down at the cross. He took your punishment, took your wrath. He has been so good to you. And now He offers up a way to have eternal life with Him, fullness of joy in His presence, Pleasures forevermore in heaven where there's no sorrow, no tears in heaven 
where you're with God in His presence, living with Him for all of eternity. And He has been so, so good to you, right? And though He has been so good to you, you think about it. Though He has been so good to you, you have rebelled against Him. You have rejected Him. You have neglected Him countless times. This means that you are not just a little sinner. You have spit in His face. You have taken all that grace that's been poured out and everybody in the room has trampled over the top of it. You walked over His back. Just like the rest of us. So, you don't deserve a slap on the wrist. You, like the rest of us, deserve eternity in hell. Forever and ever and ever, as the Bible describes it, torment day and night, forever and ever, in the lake of fire. Because think of what you know, think of how good He has been. And yet you reject Him still. You've rejected Him. Everybody in the room. Do you see the horrific nature of your sin when you put it up next to the goodness of God? You see it? Just like the goodness of God in Eden shows us the horrific nature of the sin in Genesis chapter 3 the fall of man, the goodness of God towards you. Imagine it. And you sin against that God? Harden your heart to that God? Now, within your mind, with, with, the, with the horrific, the view of the horrific nature of your own personal sin, as you've turned against God, as you have that in your mind, how incredible, incredible is the mercy and love of God that He would still be willing to redeem people like us. How merciful is this God? Isaiah 65 verse 1 through 3 gives you a picture of it. You've heard me say it before. He holds out His hands all day long. Not to little sinners, but to a rebellious people. He says, here am I, here am I, to a people not called by His name who provoke Him to His face continually and He holds out a hand of mercy. So what happens is you see your ridiculous sin. You think about the great goodness of God that's been poured out and yet your sin against this God and you open your eyes from being buried under your sin and you see a hand of mercy still extended to you. What love does this God possess? What mercy? Last thing I'll say here, if you're here, and I don't know everyone, if you're lost, okay, you don't know Christ, you're not converted, listen to what the verse said, okay? Christ has shown His love. You've trampled over His grace. You have sinned and turned away from Him. You, there's other things you love more than Him. It's crazy that you have done that and that I, you're just like me, okay? It's crazy. And yet, Christ laid down His life for you and the hand is extended out. He holds it out all day long to people that provoke Him to His face continually. So if you're here and you're lost, the hand of the mercy of God is extended out to you. Don't reject the mercy of God. Don't reject the goodness of God extended out to you. There is a time when that hand will be yanked back and there will be no more chances. But right now it's reached out to you. And if you're here and you're saved, I just want to leave you with a verse. Do you remember that you sinned against God like this? Listen to Ephesians 2 verse 11. 11 through 13. Therefore remember. So you here that are in Christ, He says remember. He wants you to remember something. Remember. Verse 12. That at that time, you were without Christ. Remember that time? Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Do you remember that? God's goodness extended to you infinitely and yet no hope without God and without Christ. And verse 13 says, and here's your reminder, but now in Christ Jesus... You know, the one who suffered for you? You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, please help us to respond to Your Word. 
Lord, if there is anyone here, anyone here that doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would, God, I pray that you keep them from hardening their heart. Lord, that they would turn to you and you offer up a hand of mercy to draw them near to you, to forgive them of their sins, give them eternal life. And I pray, God, that they would not harden their heart, that you would soften their hearts to come to you, Lord Jesus. And God, for everyone here who is your child, God, help us to remember that we once were far off and that we too rejected your mercy. And God, fill our hearts with worship that you have brought us near by your blood. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.